Hi, Parcast listeners. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. In honor of Earth Day, all of Parcast is bringing you a special event called Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies. For this event, we're investigating the shadowy corners where crime and the environment meet. And telling those stories. Because climate change isn't just about science and the weather. It shows up in all parts of society and culture, even crime. Did you know, for example, about the strange circumstances surrounding the 1974 death of a chemical technician? Or that in the early 2000s, there was a serial killer with a very specific target, hikers in national forests. Or did you know about the many environmental activists who go missing? Or end up dead? To hear these stories and more, come along with us for a different kind of Earth Day celebration. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Hey, Molly, how much water do you think we use? Well, the average person only drinks about eight cups per day. True, but we consume far more than that. Let's start from the moment you wake up. You brush your teeth, flush the toilet, wash your hands. Wait, at this point, you've already used gallons of water, and you're just getting started. And once you've freshened up, you brew a cup of coffee. Of course, coffee is made of coffee beans which come from coffee plants. It takes a lot of water to grow them. If you count all that, your single cup of dark brew used 130 liters. After you've gotten your caffeine fix, you get dressed for work. You slip on a new shirt. It's made of cotton, which needs 2,500 liters of water to grow. By lunchtime, you've committed your biggest offense, eating a hamburger. This meal required 15,000 liters of water. That's not just accounting for how much the cow drank, but also what it ate. Alfalfa, a water-intensive plant. If you took all the water it takes to make just one burger and wanted to store it, you'd need a container the size of a king-size bed. These are just a few examples of how we use water in everyday life. And our consumption is just a fraction of what's used by corporations and farms. Think of all the stores in the world loaded with food, plastic packaging, trendy clothes, and electronics. The water consumption they represent is staggering. If things don't change, our planet can run out of water. And sooner than we think. Which begs the question, what will life on Earth look like when that happens? And what can we do? to avoid that fate. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. 
Molly, as we speak, I'm staring at a reusable bottle of water sitting in front of me. And it's making me nervous. Because this episode is all about how the world is running out of drinking water. I say, drink up while you still can, Richard. Because some cities are already predicting in the next few decades, their taps will go dry. Today, we'll take a closer look at where our water comes from and why it's running out. We'll examine the devastation of a world without water and explore how we can avoid that fate. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Water covers over 70% of the Earth's surface. We have 326 million trillion gallons of it. So why are cities around the world bracing for a water crisis? Well, 97% of our planet's water is too salty to drink. Another 2% of it is trapped in ice at the North and South Poles, which leaves just 1% of fresh water for humans to use. Now scientists have created some tools to help us capture more water, which we'll delve into later. But at the current consumption rate, cities around the world are headed for a day zero when taps will run dry. And that means water will have to be rationed. If you wanted to wash your clothes or take a shower, you'd have to take empty jugs to your nearest collection station. There, you'd only be allowed to fill up a few containers. And afterward, you wouldn't be able to replenish it for at least a couple of days, maybe even a week. This may sound like the plot of a sci-fi movie, but metropolitan areas around the world are already bracing themselves for this scenario. The term Day Zero became popular a few years ago, when Cape Town was on pace to run out of water by April 2018. London, Beijing, and Istanbul may be headed down the same path before long. As for how we got here, 90% of the global population lives within a few miles of a freshwater source. Those who don't have to import what they need. For the most part, our fresh water comes from rivers, glaciers, lakes, or underground aquifers. These are permeable areas of sand, gravel, or clay that store water. Unfortunately, mismanagement and a worsening climate crisis have led to historic droughts. Take Mexico City. According to the Netflix and Vox docuseries Explained, local officials predict the metro will deplete half its water supply in the next 30 to 50 years. Centuries ago, Mexico City was surrounded by a vast lake with plentiful water for everyone. In the 14th and 15th centuries, the Aztecs settled in and made canals to circulate it around town. But officials haven't managed it well since then. As the Spanish invaded and the population boomed, developers drained the lake to create more land for homes and buildings. The soil around the lake used to capture rainwater and let it trickle into aquifers. Now the precipitation streams down dirty concrete, collecting pollutants and pesticides until it contaminates other bodies of water. Even if Mexico City still had its original geography, climate change is making rainfall patterns more erratic. That means cities face longer dry spells. 
Mexico City has joined California, Saudi Arabia, and others in pumping water out of aquifers. But they only hold a limited amount of fluid, which accumulated over thousands of years. So when they go dry, which is likely to happen soon, it'll take millennia to fill them back up. As if that's not bad enough, pumping groundwater causes soil to sink. This makes aquifers smaller, which means they won't be able to store as much in the future. So it's time for a change, and a big one, because historically, authorities and corporations haven't been particularly careful about water usage. Sometimes whole industries, like fast fashion, are only expected to comply within certain regulations on a voluntary basis. And there's no guarantee they'll put the environment first if it gets in the way of profits. They can get away with wastefulness because water is so cheap. It has to be. Access to water is a human right, so it needs to be priced so lower-income folks can afford it. Rather than explore creative solutions, authorities tend to avoid the problem altogether and other related issues. Many cities don't bother fixing their old pipes, even when they're leaky. Unfortunately, water lines don't just leak. They can wear down over time. That's what happened in Flint, Michigan in 2014, when the city started sourcing water from the Flint River without properly treating it. As water flowed through the city's old pipes, it eroded their lead lining. Eventually, chips of lead contaminated the water coming out of residents' taps. For months, locals complained about the murky color and foul odor. But government officials, including the mayor, insisted it was safe to drink. It would take 18 months before authorities finally switched back to Flint's original water supplier. And while they've been gradually replacing their lead pipes, as of September 2022, they still weren't finished. According to the state of Michigan, lead poisoning during the crisis resulted in 12 deaths. But a PBS Frontline investigation believes dozens more victims were unaccounted for. There are also early signs the city's children may have experienced brain damage from exposure. As with Flint, many other communities dealt with contaminated tap water. In fact, one in four European homes has lead piping, and the number is much higher in older cities. In a 2009 study from Swansea University researchers C.R. Hayes and Andy Scabala, the authors argue that 120 million Europeans are potentially at risk of drinking water with high levels of lead. But that may soon become a moot point, because at the rate we're consuming water today, before too long, taps and faucets will be a thing of the past. According to the United Nations, up to two-thirds of the global population could be living in water-stressed areas as early as 2025. Coming up, a future without running water. Now, back to the story. Currently, millions of people live in cities headed toward day zero, when their tap water will run dry. We don't have to imagine what their lives will look like, because some have already suffered this fate. As we speak, I'm in a recording booth in Southern California, which is experiencing the worst drought in 1,200 years. 
About 160 miles north of me in the San Joaquin Valley, wells are drying up. The town of East Porterville, California was hit particularly hard. Residents depended on private wells for their drinking water. But in 2014, Donna Johnson switched on her faucet and only a few drops came out. Her well had dried up. Her husband, Howard, tried to dig it deeper. He dropped an electric pump into it, hoping to hear a splash when he tapped into more liquid. Instead, he heard a clunk. There was no groundwater left below them. Donna went door to door, asking neighbors if they had any water, but they were all out. The town of East Porterville fell into a crisis. Donna purchased bottled water and gave cases away to families in need. She became known around town as the Water Angel. Her neighbors called her at all hours of the day, asking for help. Donna's devotion to her community inspired local officials to step up and support their neighbors. Residents clutching barrels and trash bags went to the local fire station to get water from its tank. The local pastor, Ramon Hernandez, turned his church's parking lot into an oasis where families could pick up rations. He also set up a trailer with emergency showers so townspeople had somewhere to bathe. But that wasn't enough. The people of East Porterville had to adopt extreme conservation measures. Previously, green lawns withered. Locals took sponge baths at home. They saved dirty water so they'd have something to pour in the toilet before they flushed. Eventually, state and county officials stepped in to deliver water bottles and tanks, but hundreds of residents still didn't have running water for over a year. Just imagine a crisis like that, but in a major city. As we mentioned earlier, in 2018, South Africa's Cape Town was rapidly approaching day zero. To stave off disaster, caps were instituted. Residents were only allowed to use 13 gallons per day. Now that may sound like a lot, but a 10-minute shower uses more than that. And 13 gallons is about equal to the UN's minimum daily recommendation. People had to test how long they could go without washing their hair or flushing the toilet. Bottled water became an invaluable commodity, sold out the minute it hit shelves. Parents would drop their kids off at school early, then race to the supermarkets just as they opened. Millions of residents couldn't buy fluid. They had to wait for hours to fill jugs at Cape Town's natural springs or water collection sites. Fortunately, because Cape Townians took the crisis seriously, they conserved more than they ever had before. That must have been worth some good karma, because in 2018, they were blessed with a rainy season. It was abundant enough to delay day zero for the foreseeable future. That said, if townspeople stopped conserving, they could find themselves in the same situation again. Any future crisis will likely impact residents differently depending on how wealthy they are. In water-scarce regions, the poor tend to suffer the most while the rich can afford to pay for access to resources. Take a look at Karachi, Pakistan. Due to climate change and poor infrastructure management, there's limited drinking water in the low-income village of Orangi. Locals haven't had reliable running water for years. The region's water line powers on for a single hour. 
every couple of weeks, if they're lucky. When an Al Jazeera reporter interviewed 60-year-old resident Rabia Begum, she said water hadn't come through in 33 days and counting. Since she couldn't rely on her local tap, Begum spent much of her income buying unfiltered water from private water tanker operators. Some of Begum's neighbors have it worse. They can't afford the $15 per tank or the $800 to set up a non-potable well. Instead, they have to take dramatic measures, not bathing for several days and letting dirty laundry pile up for weeks. Some families have stopped washing their clothes at all. It's cheaper to buy secondhand garments. When running water finally arrives, villagers ring alarm bells to alert their neighbors. Channel 4's Fazilat Aslam said folks woke up around 5 a.m. to connect their hose pipes to the water mains. The flowing water only offered momentary relief. The liquid in the jug smelled foul and looked murky. Sewage had seeped into the fresh water supply. Drinking contaminated water can lead to stomach problems or E. coli. But the residents of Orangi don't have much choice. If they don't have water, they'll die. It's not just about drinking and eating. The Orangi locals' poor hygiene and extreme rationing came at a cost, too. In an interview with Fazilat Aslam, a mother said her daughter suffered from parasitic worms thanks to the lack of sanitation. And dehydration increases the risk of joint pain and arthritis. However, Karachi's water lines seem to work better in affluent neighborhoods. And if they stop flowing for a day or two, rich households can just buy water tanks. So Karachi's water crisis is ultimately a tale of two cities. In the village of Arangi, residents struggled to quench their thirst. Just 12 miles away in a wealthy neighborhood called Defense, homeowners can fill their opulent swimming pools. In theory, water is a basic human right for everyone, rich or poor. At least, that's what the United Nations has declared. But in reality, over 2 billion people lack access to clean water. And the crisis in Karachi shows where fluid is scarce, it becomes a privilege. When people are desperate for a necessity, it can lead to corruption and violence. In Karachi, local criminals have created their own illegal pumps that draw from the public water line, intercepting the liquid before it travels downstream to impoverished villagers. Then, the tanker mafia sells it, pocketing more in a single day than many locals earn in an entire year. These water mafia groups have emerged in other water-scarce regions like India and Iran. The Karachi Water Board has cracked down on some illegal hydrants, but as soon as authorities deactivate them, criminals set up new ones elsewhere. A Pakistani NGO called the Orangi Pilot Project, or OPP, has helped authorities track illegal pumps. But the organization's mission has faced violent pushback. In early 2013, its director was a woman named Perveen Rahman, who focused on improving her neighbor's access to water. And she wasn't shy about identifying where the real problem lay. She told a documentary crew, 
It is not the poor who steal the water. It is stolen by a group of people who have the full support of the government agencies, the local councillors, mayors, and the police. One day in 2013, she was driving in the village of Orangi when four gunmen on motorcycles surrounded her vehicle and killed her. Administrators in Karachi's water board have admitted corruption is an issue within the department. Some employees even accepted kickbacks, possibly from water gangs, to set up illegal pumps. Officials also told Al Jazeera they'd received calls from senior government figures asking them to turn a blind eye to unsanctioned hydrants. A public spokesperson for the KWSB insisted the agency has a zero-tolerance policy for corruption. Any workers who got caught were fired and charged in a court of law. Whether or not that's true, there's an active illegal water market in Karachi. Just imagine what would happen if these mafiosos wake up one day and decide to expand their business. And instead of controlling a single city, they attempt to monopolize an entire country's supply. If monopolizing water sounds like the plot of a James Bond movie, that's because it was. In 2008's Quantum of Solace, villain Dominic Green wanted to take over Bolivia's water system and sell it at an exorbitant price. In true Bond fashion, the hero saves the day. But we don't need a sequel to see how monopolizing water can devastate an entire nation. Just look at Syria where an extremist group called the Islamic State, or IS, cut off water supplies and strengthened their grip on power. It's a tactic referred to as hydro-terrorism. The organization took over dams along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Then it punished enemies by either withholding water or sending so much into a city it flooded. IS shot any visitors who tried to approach their strip of the Euphrates River, and they beheaded anyone they caught taking water from their territory. The instability triggered a mass exodus of nearly 7 million people. To this day, numerous nations are grappling with the refugee crisis. Millions more remain displaced within Syria, where they've sought shelter in refugee camps. It's easy to dismiss water monopolies as something that only happens in volatile regions. But private investors in the United States are making similar moves. Since 2017, a hedge fund named Water Asset Management, or WAM, has spent millions acquiring agricultural land and water rights in arid states like Arizona and Colorado. So far, WAM says it wants to support sustainable agriculture. It's leased its land to farmers. UC Santa Barbara professor Gary Leibkap told the New York Times, WAM's investments can be good for the economy. Plenty of farmers are happy to sell their land to well-paying buyers like WAM. But according to a 2018 article from Water Education Colorado, WAM's website said one of its goals was to invest in water resources and make around a 20% return on its investments. In the event of a drought, which is more likely as climate change worsens, WAM might be able to achieve this by charging higher premiums. Unless regulators step in, private investors can manipulate prices which is already happening in Australia. 
The country allows water to be traded as a commodity on the open market, like crude oil or soybeans. It's like buying stock. In 2020, the country faced brutal wildfires and an intense drought, making water a precious resource. With insufficient regulation in place, water prices skyrocketed. If you were on the right side of the trade, you had an incentive to let the wildfires and drought keep going. You'd keep making money. This all prompted the Australian government to launch an antitrust investigation. It called for greater regulation over the water market to prevent traders from price gouging. Lawmakers in the U.S. seem to understand that what happened in Australia could happen in their country too. So in May 2022, two California state senators called for an investigation into how corporate investors are impacting water scarcity. But regulation alone won't be enough to stop the world's water crisis. We need to somehow increase our supply and reduce demand. This is an especially Herculean challenge because the global population continues to grow. In 2022, it surpassed 8 billion. Which begs the question, is there anything we can do to save ourselves? Coming up, creative solutions to manage the global water crisis. Now back to the story. With the global population booming and water becoming scarcer, cities are facing an existential crisis. Many of the places we've covered so far, Cape Town, Syria, Australia, suffer from shortages even though they sit right next to huge bodies of water. The problem is, it's not all drinkable. With all the strides we've made in science and technology, you'd think by now we could convert salt water into fresh water. After all, seawater desalination plants have been around for decades. However, they don't just remove a few specks of salt. That would be easy. We just run seawater through a strainer and have an endless supply. Instead, imagine you have a glass of water and you dump a bunch of salt into it. You'll see the salt dissolve. What you won't see, unless you have some sophisticated equipment, is the water breaking the grains of salt into charged particles. These particles interact in a way that turns the water into a new solution. This makes it difficult to isolate the salt and separate it from the water. It would be like taking a brewed cup of joe and trying to separate the coffee back out. Still, scientists are trying to work out an effective method. And today, we don't just have one kind of desalination. We have two. The oldest one is called thermal desalination. It involves boiling salt water, capturing the steam, and converting it to fresh water. In the 1960s, scientists at UCLA came up with another process called reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis doesn't boil anything, so it doesn't need heat. Instead, it applies high pressure to push salt water through a filter. You can think of it like grating cheese, but there's a catch. When you grate a block of cheddar, you still end up with the same amount, just in smaller pieces. Reverse osmosis isn't as efficient. Desalination can require around two gallons to produce just one gallon of fresh water. 
The excess is filled with a discharge called brine. This liquid has a high salt concentration, so it isn't fit for human consumption. Instead, we usually dump it back into the ocean. But some marine species can't handle such a high salt content. It's much greater than the seawater they're accustomed to. So when this super salty water sinks to the bottom of the ocean, it can be bad news for many of the plants and animals that live there. On top of wreaking environmental havoc, desalination is also expensive and energy intensive. In San Diego, California today, it costs twice as much to desalinate water than it does to import it from the Colorado River and Northern California. Supporters of desalination insist cost will go down over time, but that still doesn't change the fact that it uses a lot of energy. Even if the process was cheaper and more efficient, it would still only be possible in coastal areas where seawater could flow directly into desalination plants. So many experts think seawater desalination is a solution, but not the cure-all remedy for our global water crisis. If we're actually going to solve anything, some insist we need to value water for the precious commodity it is. If it was more expensive, we'd have reason to think twice about our consumption. But as we mentioned earlier, high prices disproportionately hurt lower-income people. Some experts have suggested a sliding scale that changes based on income and usage. For example, Basic daily activities, like drinking and showering, require 60 liters. A fare system might charge one price for the first 60 liters a single occupant dwelling uses each day, and a higher rate for every drop after that. Or, cities could adopt Philadelphia's system. In 2017, it became the first American city to implement a tiered assistance program. Residents living below the poverty line had their water bills capped at a percentage of their income. Policies like Philadelphia's might curb water usage while being fair to its most vulnerable population. Still, if we want to have enough drinking water in the future, experts say conservation is a must. Remember the enormous amount of water it takes to produce coffee, meat, and clothes? Well, if we consume less of those things, we'll also be conserving more water. But our individual efforts won't be enough. Most consumption happens at an industrial and agricultural level, so it's critical that corporations and farmers also reconsider their choices. For example, Constellation Brands, the maker of Corona beer, planned to establish a water-intensive brewery in Mexicali, a community facing a severe shortage. After locals protested in 2020, they decided to move their operations to a site along a major river in the Mexican state of Veracruz. When it comes to farmers, those working in arid regions could scale back on foods that need a lot of water like meat and nuts. Cities also have a crucial role to play. Many urban areas are covered in concrete, which means there's no way for rainwater to seep into the soil. Instead, we've created gutters that sweep it away. Those gutters have saved cities from being flooded, but Professor David Sedlak recommends we find ways to harvest it and make it suitable for drinking instead. In his 2015 TED Talk, Sedlak said if San Jose, California were to harvest half of its stormwater, 
the city would have enough to last a year. But that raises a new issue, storage. Many cities don't have the space for a tank that's big enough. That's why Sedlak suggested stashing it underground. Most cities already lay atop natural water storage systems, like the aquifers we mentioned earlier. Once the water's been captured in an aquifer, it can be purified and distributed to people's taps. Los Angeles is already taking Sedlak up on this idea. In June 2022, city and county officials celebrated the opening of the Tohunga Spreading Grounds Stormwater Capture System. Think of it as a massive puddle that can collect 5 billion gallons of water, enough to supply tens of thousands of homes. Los Angeles is also where architect Dan Brune designed Bridge House, a property that recycles any rainwater that drops on it. The driveway is lined with permeable pavers. They help precipitation filter down through the soil instead of sweeping into the gutter. The home also has a rainwater harvesting tank in the backyard. According to Professor Sedlak, this kind of recycling can also help us make better use of sewage water. All it takes is two steps. First, the wastewater has to go through reverse osmosis. It's the process we mentioned earlier with desalination. Then advanced oxidation. This involves adding chemicals and shining ultraviolet light on the water to break down any remaining organic pollutants. By that point, it's suitable for drinking. Many Southern California residents already rely on this water recycling system for their drinking water. Sedlak helped engineer a treatment wetland along the Santa Ana River, which receives wastewater from nearby cities. It may not sound like the ideal place to grow plants, but sunlight and algae purify the wastewater, which then flows into the Santa Ana River. It trickles down to Anaheim, where it's deposited into the ground and supplies the city with its drinking water. Unlike desalination plants, stormwater capture systems and water recycling can be implemented virtually anywhere. Plus, storage and treatment require much less energy than converting salty ocean water into clean drinking water. If we don't adopt one or more of these conservation processes, water is poised to become an even scarcer resource, one that breeds price gouging and fierce competition between countries. Former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan even predicted future wars may be fought over fresh water. The high stakes prompted a Goldman Sachs report to declare water the petrol of the 21st century. But it's even more valuable than that. We can live without oil. The same can't be said for drinking water. On the bright side, we've seen how much can be conserved when people take the crisis seriously, like in Cape Town. When day zero became a real possibility, they banded together to save what they could. In the coming years, people around the world will have to match those conservation efforts, and cities will have to embrace innovation, like dynamic pricing and stormwater capture, to ensure residents still have access to drinking water and food. Because, like the water crisis, feeding the world has also proven to be, well, challenging. But we'll get into that next time.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, brought to you by Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. And check out our other shows like Unsolved Murders, Solved Murders, and Serial Killers. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify every Tuesday. For more information on the future of drinking water, amongst the many sources we used, we found the World's Water Crisis episode of Box's Explained docuseries extremely helpful to our research. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Ben Hanani, edited by Wendelin Sabroso and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, produced by Aaron Larson, and sound designed by Kerry Murphy. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. 